I want to talk about various different levels of consciousness. Talk about the conscious mind, the subconscious mind, the super conscious mind. And then, uh, I wanted to talk about, you know, changing. Ugh, I don't like my hair this morning. Um, I wanted to talk about changing, uh, core transformation, uh, changing the core of your being, changing the core of who you are. This is so important. Uh, again, I just want to emphasize over and over because we're, we grow up on a culture and a system, a society, that is so focused on changing our lives. We focus on changing the externals, what's going on around us, changing our environment. And yet the most powerful changes that we can have, the most powerful transformations we can have is transforming ourselves at the level of our core being. And so understanding some things about the human being and about how we work. So I want to kind of crystallize or bring together uh, some things about my understanding of how we work. We are a consciousness. I want to stress that. I talked about that, uh, <clears throat> I talked about that last week, that we are a consciousness. We are a mind. Um, and this mind primarily is made up of two sections that most people talk about. The conscious mind, where you live, where your personality is, where your awareness and your will and your freedom, your free choice, uh, exists. That exists at the level of the conscious mind. And then we have the subconscious mind, which some people call the involuntary mind. And in a very real way, the difference between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind is about here. And what I mean by that is that our conscious mind is where we do a lot of our thinking, where we do our imagining, where we do making decisions throughout our day. The subconscious mind is, you can think about it, all the stuff that sort of gets <clears throat> wired into our bodies. Now, your bodies are connected to consciousness, too, because it's primarily uh, a sense receptor. It's an awareness vessel or vehicle, if you will. You've got the five physical senses, touch being the primary, the primary one, the biggest one. In fact, the other four don't work without touch. For example, you don't taste something until it touches your taste buds, or you don't smell something until something comes into connection and touches your <clears throat> smell receptors, right, in your nose, that kind of thing. But all of this is an information gathering system, if you will, for the world around us. <clears throat> and then our minds generate a model of reality, generates what this thing out here is supposed to be and presents it to us. So we're constantly living in our minds. We're living in our minds representation or representation of physical reality as it is around us. <clears throat> now, we're also a system of energy and I'll talk a little bit more about that because I want to talk about subtle energies as it relates to breath work. So if we want to be serious about transformation, core transformation, individual transformation, then we have to deal with the subconscious. We have to deal with the stuff that's in the subconscious because that primarily dictates to us how we are in the world. How they, uh, our subconscious mind gives us the mental and emotional frames through which we have our experiences. And those mental and emotional frames then govern to a large degree, the quality of that experience. You can think about it, your beliefs, your subconscious beliefs, or your subconscious thinking, mental and emotional states. You can think about it as sort of what color glasses are you seeing the world through? Because our <clears throat> core frames, our core beliefs, 
filter the way we interpret circumstances. And then we respond to life through those filters. We don't respond to life as it is. We respond to life through those filters. And those filters are subconscious. And to a large degree, those filters are experienced and felt within the body. Something that was really interesting that I did several years ago when I was still really studying the Bible and trying to understand the human being within the context of a biblical framework, one of the things I did was I looked up all of the words in Hebrew specifically for mind, heart, emotions. And what I discovered is that I could not find a single reference. Now, there might still be one in there, but I could not find, when I did this thorough search, a single reference in the Hebrew about um, consciousness being in the head. Uh, so a lot of things that get translated in your newer translations, mind, have nothing to do with what we think of in Western culture as the mind. Sometimes when something gets translated mind, in the Hebrew it's talking about the liver, or it's talking about the kidneys, or it's talking about the bowels, or it is talking about the heart. Uh, and what I began to see from that was that consciousness, the way it was understood or portrayed in the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew language, is a fully embodied consciousness. I uh, went on a bit of a rant on Facebook, I think it was Friday night, uh, <clears throat> because so much of dialogue that I engage in with Christian people is completely intellectual. It's completely based on study and scholarship and the Bible, and it's this thinking mode, and we come up with thinking concepts about who God is and what God is, and that in and of itself is a map. So people who believe in God don't relate to God as God any more than they relate to the physical world as a physical world. Here's what I mean by that. We all have a mental projection or a mental idea of who we think God is. And so growth in Christian circles is spiritual growth is really just an evolving mental image that we're projecting about our, about who God is, about who we are, about who the world is. Maybe we have a devil that fits into that mental concept, but it's all 100% mental. And so it does very, very little to touch the inner person and very, very little to accomplish core transformation, which is why a lot of Christians are really frustrated because they they got into this life, most of us, and some of us, you know, were just raised in it. Others, maybe to get over a fear of death or deal with the grief from the loss of a loved one. Think about Christianity in terms of the afterlife, but anybody that's thinking about, you know, embracing Christianity because of how it's going to improve their lives, for the most part, they're just mental junkies. Uh, we sit in <clears throat> services and we listen to messages uh, about God. We look for insights in the Bible about life, about how we're supposed to be, about what it means to be a good Christian. And this all becomes this mental game that we're playing with ourselves. And then we consider growth. If you're going to grow, go to Bible studies, maybe. If you're going to grow, pray. But praying is done out of the mind, out of the head for the most part. Quoting scripture, uh, finding scriptures that help. I remember when I was young, I always had this sense of God and connection with God. We weren't big Bible people at all. We went to the Methodist church. And I don't know what they talked about in the Methodist church. I couldn't, I couldn't, I remember being even in my teenage years, I'm going to really try to engage and listen to what this sermon is about. 
And usually they only preach for 20 minutes in the Methodist church, maybe a little bit longer. But in the church I grew up, man, we went to church from 11 to 12. And if the pastor was going a little bit past 12, there was uh, one specific person on the board of elders that would uh, kind of let them know by falling asleep or whatever. And if the pastor did that consistently on Sunday mornings, they got invited by the conference to uh, find a different parish. So we weren't real big on Bible people. We didn't go to Bible school or, I mean, like, like I guess we did vacation Bible school, but it was mostly just, you know, fun stuff for kids and stuff like that. We didn't really get into studying the Bible. That didn't happen for me until years, years, years and years later. But I remember as a child, my mom had a Bible, and in this Bible she had a uh, <clears throat> uh, bookmark that had a bunch of Bible promises on them. And for various different things, fear, worry, love, concern, relationships, whatever. And there were Bible verses that you could go to. And I was a relatively frightened child. I was a worrisome child. I was an anxious child. Lots of reasons for that. And so I remember constantly going to Psalm 91 because Psalm 91 was the promise for dealing with fear. And so, again, it's this mental thing. Fear is something that's happening at an emotional level. And so what we offer to ourselves in that context to cope with or help with or deal with our fears is a Bible verse or a Bible promise. And so I'm kind of belaboring the point, but I really want you to see that, you know, I think if we could uh, uh, sort of create cartoon images that would represent what we were like when we were doing those things in the faith, we would be these... Uh, caricatures, these character drawings, these cartoon drawings of these really giant heads, right? And very little else, very little awareness going on down here. And when you have very little awareness going on down here of the emotional responses and emotional reactions that you have inside your body, then you're doing very little to actually transform your life. Because what you feel, although it may not be accurate, to the actual circumstances that you're facing, what you feel does reveal and represent to you what you're actually believing about whatever the situation is that you're thinking about in that moment. And so a lot of people, especially people that have been traumatized, live really from here up, and they can describe it as uh, the feeling like they're walking alongside themselves. Uh, they're just constantly in their head, and they're what we might call flighty, or uh, they're just, they have a hard time engaging in earthly things, attention deficit type stuff, stuff like that. Sometimes that's something going on in the brain. Other times that's the byproduct of trauma, and we've just disconnected. We've disconnected from the world because it's too painful. We've disconnected from our body because that's the receptor that we have to tell us who we are in the world. And it's just too uncomfortable to live in our body. So we disconnect from our body. We live up here in our head and we tell ourselves stories. And those stories are generated to a large degree by the subconscious. And then we live out those stories. For example, if we're very irritable, if we're very touchy, if we get offended very easily, then more often than not, somewhere in childhood, we began to tell ourselves a story where we were a victim. We began to tell ourselves a story where we were devalued, where we didn't have, we weren't worthy of love. We weren't worthy of worth. And then we have this subconscious image of who we are in the world, the character that we're playing in the world. 
And then whenever people do things to us, even if they're not doing them to us, which very seldom, you know, people don't do stuff to us, but I say somebody bites your head off, somebody's irritable with you, somebody doesn't like you, somebody gives you the cold shoulder. And our immediate go-to, especially if we've been trauma victims, and most people have, our immediate go-to story is is being filtered, like I said with those glasses earlier, through I'm unworthy, I'm unloved, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, all that stuff. And so that becomes our experience. They did that to us. We were the victim of their bitiness. We were the victim of their cold shoulder. We were the victim of them not liking us or not wanting to include us or whatever. And so that just builds on this subconscious story that we have. So when I'm talking about core transformation, I'm talking about getting right down into the feeling of it. I'm talking about getting right down into where our stories live. And and this requires that we're able to deal with uncomfortable feelings. And, and also it requires that we live in our bodies or that we at least ask ourselves, what is my body trying to tell me? How is my body feeling and, and processing and dealing with this situation. All of that is happening at a subconscious level, but I'm making a connection between the subconscious and the emotions and the body and the consciousness of the body on purpose as it relates to breath work. And we'll see this in a minute. I want you to realize that you've never had an emotional experience that wasn't physiological, that there wasn't something going on in your body. You never felt an emotion that didn't register somewhere in your body. You don't have emotions that aren't being held somewhere in your body. And so again, if we're going to talk about transformation, if we're going to talk about real alchemy or transmuting the contents of our souls, we can't do that unless we're in our bodies and specifically able to tolerate being in our bodies when our bodies feel uncomfortable. Now, a lot of spiritual traditions uh, talk about there really only being two emotions. So in this system, we're going to separate feelings, anger being a feeling, uh, anxiety being a feeling, depression being a feeling, joy being a feeling, peace being a feeling, love being a feeling, compassion being a feeling. Well, love is an emotion, so, um, but compassion being a feeling. Pity, all, all these things are really feelings, frustration. Uh, <clears throat> just being chill, you know, I'm just, I'm very chill today, I'm chilling. All those things are feelings that are governed by two basic emotions. And we do see this in the New Testament in some places that there are two emotions that are described as being in conflict with each other. So that the opposite of love in many of the writings in the Bible, but again, other spiritual traditions are love and fear. So perfect love casts out fear. First John says, um, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love and of a sound mind. Um, you've not been given a spirit of bondage again, but a spirit of sonship whereby you cry out, Abba, Father. So you come into this, this love relationship and that's supposed to set you free from fear. So there is a recognition that there are two primary human emotions. One primary human emotion is love. The other primary emotion is fear. Now, these two are operating underneath every single feeling that we have. So if you say, okay, there's a difference in this system between emotions and fear, or I'm sorry, emotions and feelings, then what are the feelings? Well, the feelings are the thoughts that we're having that are being energized by either love or being energized by fear. 
And this has a lot to do with how we interact in the world. So anger, for example, is a byproduct of fear. Uh, we get angry at something because we feel like it's a threat to us. We feel like harm has come to us, or we feel like if we don't deal with this situation, then harm is going to come to us. Anxiety is a feeling that's based on fear. We want to avoid a situation. We're dreading a situation. Well, you can't dread a situation if you're not constructing the idea of what that situation is going to be in your mind, but the emotional fuel for it is fear. Now, this is not only a spiritual concept or a psychological concept, it's very connected physiologically because your body, your subconscious mind primarily turns on and off or governs or works with your autonomic nervous system, your autonomic uh, auto, meaning on autopilot, right? Nomic kind of coming from this idea of uh, the mind, And then it's an entire system that runs throughout our body. And your autonomic nervous system is divided into two primary functions. You have what's called the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Two responses. We know them as fight or flight, or I like to nuance it a little bit and say fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. These are all of our stress responses. This is when we begin to feel stress. (laughs) We begin to feel stress. We begin to go into fight or flight. That's the fear response. That's the sympathetic nervous system. And then you have the parasympathetic nervous system, which offsets that, which we know as the rest and digest. Now, interestingly enough, while the sympathetic nervous system gets turned on when we're stressed, the parasympathetic nervous system really gets turned on uh, or is activated during sex and uh, uh, orgasms and things like that. And so there can be this huge feeling of relief. So a lot of people, in fact, most men that I worked with that had some kind of sexual compulsion, we call it sexual addiction, but technically it's a compulsion because you're not adding really a substance to you to alter your mind, which is where addiction comes in. Addiction, your brain becomes addicted to the substance. But this can be an addiction to a feeling an addiction to the sexual response, an addiction to uh, the the feelings that come with our with our sexuality or with our love response. And so a lot of people with compulsive sexual behaviors, they're looking for love or that really what's going on is they're trying to get out of the stress response. They spend a ton of their time subconsciously or a ton of their time living in anxiety, living in fear. And so because orgasm shuts that system off and shuts the other one on, then they end up using that to cope with the fear and the anxiety. So we would oftentimes in therapy treat the person not based on their sexual addiction, but based on their traumas that have created these stories that cause them to live weak and powerless and victimized in the world. Oftentimes it goes back to, ironically enough for men, it goes back to father issues and daddy issues and not feeling competent or not feeling masculine enough or whatever the case may be. And so they're coping with these other systems using sexuality to consistently turn off the fight or flight response. So all of that's going on at the level of this nervous system. Now, this is where breathing comes in. 
because your autonomic nervous system is also governing things like your digestion, thus rest and, di- rest and digest. It's also why when you feel a pit in your stomach, oh, I just feel like I got kicked in the stomach. You ever have something happen? Somebody does something, you feel, oh, I feel kicked in my stomach, kicked in my stomach. Or you think about something, you feel sick to your stomach. Or you're going through a really stressful time, you don't eat, you can't eat. It's because your body is completely turned off. You're living almost exclusively in that stress response. You're living almost exclusively in fear. You're living almost exclusively with the parasympathetic nervous system going. And so all the blood's coming away from your body. Literally, your body's saying it's not time to digest food. So if it's not time to digest food, it's not time to rest and digest, then you don't have anything going on there. So you're not hungry. You don't want to eat or you do eat, you get sick. This is why people throw up before uh, when they're nervous. You know, you hear about professional athletes that throw up before big games or people that go on stage and have stage fright. They're sick in the bathroom before they have to go on. It's because it's, it's literally this interplay of the nervous system that's taking place. Now, you and I cannot mentally control our digestion. We can't just turn it on and off. We cannot mentally control our heartbeat, thank God, or our blood pressure and things like that at will. As much as we can, our breath, because your autonomic nervous system is controlling or keeping you breathing. But it is the one aspect of the autonomic nervous system where our conscious mind can become involved. So I did this last week. If I want to hold my breath, I want to stop breathing, I can stop breathing. See, my conscious mind is overriding my subconscious in that moment. Or I can dictate various different patterns to breathing. Breathe really fast and slow. Or I can breathe uh, I'm, I'm really fast and shallow. That's what I meant. Really not fast and slow. <laughs> really fast and shallow. <laughs> or we can breathe slow and deep. So at just a biological level, the ability to work with my breath opens up that pathway between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind in a very, very powerful way. Now, the other part of this is that your breathing um, is like the light switch, if you will, that's going on between these two aspects or components of the nervous system or these two nervous systems, the sympathetic fear response, parasympathetic love response. So your breath is controlling or turning the switch on between fear and love. And the way this works is, is that when you breathe in, you're activating the sympathetic nervous system. When you breathe out, you're activating the parasympathetic. And what we want to do is we want to live in balance. Think about it. Some people think, well, I just want to live in rest and digest all the time. Well, you'd never get anything done. Uh, studies show that there is a necessary level of anxiety in order to perform well in life. If you didn't have the ability to turn on the fight or flight response, and they've proven this in studies, they've proven this with people who have damage to the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that activates the sympathetic nervous system, that Things that would seem like common sense, like not sticking, let's just say, for example, 
being aware of and dealing with that rattlesnake. I remember we had a lot of rattlesnakes out here. I remember coming home after one of my graduate classes and sitting out on my porch and I'm just sitting there like I normally would in my chair in my backyard. And I look down and there's three baby rattlers, like just inches from my leg. Now you better believe I had a fight or flight response. Uh, because baby, baby rattlers, if you don't know, are more poisonous than the adults because the adults can actually control the amount of venom, whereas baby rattlers just pump you full of venom. And there's three of them over there by me. And so, you know, I jump up like that. That's an activation of the fight or flight response, the sympathetic nervous system. We need that. And so ideally, we want to be in this level of balance. So if you've studied things like the heart math method or you've looked at, you've gone to therapy and they talk to you about square breathing, this thing we call square breathing where you breathe to the count of four and exhale to the count of four. The key in all of this is to make sure that you're breathing in the same amount of time that you're exhaling so that there's balance between the uh, this switching on and off of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. I hope this isn't boring to you. I feel like I'm just giving a <clears throat> beginning college lecture or something. <laughs> so <clears throat> there's that aspect to the breath. I'm going to get into the spiritual aspect of it in just a minute. <clears throat> but what I want you to realize is that meditation Really meditation, the state of meditation, when you, the, 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 the state you go into in meditation is really a form of self hypnosis. You're taking yourself down, you're bridging the gap. If you're doing breathing meditation, focusing on your breath, you're bridging that gap, you're opening up a gateway, if you will, by simply focusing on your breath between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. So the subconscious mind becomes more, uh, amenable more available to the conscious mind and you can put the kind of suggestions into your subconscious mind that you want so that you can change these stories. You can change that victim story. That victim story got lodged into your uh, uh, system through uh, auto suggestion or suggestions that were coming from without. So you have a traumatic experience. Your body goes into like a shock when you have a trauma that opens up the subconscious on purpose because part of the deal here is to keep you alive. And the subconscious is involved with keeping you alive, governs digestion, heartbeat, blood pressure, things like this, right? Breathing. So when you go into a state of shock, your conscious mind, if you will, goes into the background so you're very open to suggestion, and the reason for this is because your brain is trying to learn from this situation as quickly as possible so that you'll be prepared to deal with another situation like this somehow in the future. Now, the problem is, is that especially as children, when we go through this shock, uh, then usually there's talk going on. So, for example, if you were abused as a child by a parent, then chances are if that parent's yelling at you, if that parent is beating you, if that parent's chasing you around the house, they're also cursing you at the same time. You dumb child, I'm going to get you. I wish I'd never had you. You just make my life miserable. God, I can't stand being around. Why Why do you have to be so stupid? Why do you see all that stuff? Or if it's going on with peers or if it's going on in some cases of sexual abuse. And I'm really trying to be careful not to trigger people. But during sexual abuse, things can go on like, if you move, I'll kill you. 
um, if, uh, or, you know, all kinds of gross stuff can happen there. And so your brain's opening up saying, we've got to learn this fast. So it's taking in that information right away. So if, if you're like, I got to learn something here fast as a child and you're hearing you're stupid, you're worthless, you'll never amount to anything. I wish you were never born. Well, guess what? The subconscious takes that man and wires it into your system immediately because that's just the way we work. Now, the problem is, is you had nothing to do with any of those suggestions. You had no conscious choice. Your conscious mind, your critical thinking mind was in the background. Your involuntary mind's wide open. It's taking in that story. And so now it starts generating that story. Okay, I'm worthless. I'm hopeless. And this is where your angry self-talk comes from inside your head, uh, where people are, you know, they get into situations. You'll find out they get into situations where they feel stupid, right? They feel the activation of that stupid. And then they'll hear a voice inside their head, oftentimes their own voice saying, you're just so stupid. You're such a dumb, worthless piece of crap. Uh, you know, stuff like that. It's never really very nice. You can think about this again. Um, let's say that you're a child and you're brought up to solve a math problem and you can't figure out math. This is experience of a lot of kids. I had trouble with math. You're watching all your classmates get it. And you're going into this fight or flight response. You're going into it. Oh my God, what's wrong with me? And you're asking yourself the question, what's wrong with me? How come they can get it and I can't get it? And then they bring you up in front of the class and you can't solve the problem and everybody laughs. Now you're in that state. You're running this. You sit down and somebody says, how can you be so stupid? Or they're laughing at you, mocking you, calling you names. You're internalizing that. Your subconscious is internalizing all that. And that becomes part of your story where, uh, so then when something happens, like, Oh, Aaron, you were so stupid. And you say, well, I, I tell myself I'm stupid all the time. No, you got programmed with that. So these things run on an automatic loop. So when you take control of your breath and meditation, whether you're keeping it even, whether you're exhaling, very few people will exhale more than they'll inhale. Just pay attention to your breathing. Most people, very few people will um, inhale for uh, three seconds and exhale for four. They'll inhale for three seconds and exhale for two or whatever. And because we spend so much time stressed, our breathing is generally very rapid and very shallow. And we're almost always inhaling more than we're exhaling. If you want to activate and turn on the rest and digest more, you have to exhale more than you inhale. So one of the things we teach in therapy for people that really struggle with anxiety, take control of your breath, slow it down, pull from your diaphragm and inhale slowly, and then exhale longer than you inhaled. You have to push with your diaphragm. So all these things are activating and it's changing your body chemistry. I mean, there's just all kinds of biological things that are going on. Now, this is also why in most spiritual traditions, the breath is linked to spirit. So this is where I want to get into the spiritual aspect of this. So most of us come from a Christian or Hebraic tradition in the Hebrew Bible. The word for breath, the word for spirit the word Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, wind, air, all of that is linked to the atmosphere. It's linked to, so in other words, you could say the word for spirit and the word for breath in the Hebrew is the same word. Um, God breathed into Adam the breath of life. He became a living being. Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
Um, literally, if it was translated, the law of the breath or the wind, the law of the wind or breath of life has made me free from the law of sin and death. So even in ancient Hebraic systems and in Orthodox Judaism, they focus on breath work in their meditations. It's the foundation of it. In yoga, um, we had someone come into our church and do a weekend long uh, conference on Kundalini yoga. And the main thing in meditation was the breathing pattern. That was the foundation for all of it. So working with your breath is the foundation of a lot of spiritual systems. In um, uh, India, they call it prana or pranic breathing. So this idea that when you're breathing in, you're not just breathing in the atmosphere, the, the elements in the air at getting the oxygen and exhaling the carbon dioxide and whatever. Um, you're literally breathing in the energy of life. You're breathing in this invisible energy of life, which is prana. In China, it's called chi. In America, or in the West, it's called spirit. All of this is tied and connected to your breath. Now, we also know that your breath is energizing you, but I do think that these ancient systems were onto something that we're also inhaling this life energy that then is energizing our etheric body. Now, what is the etheric body? So they've done all, they've done all kinds of research and work where they know that we have an energetic presence that extends beyond us. Um, some studies show that from our heart, there's an electromagnetic signal that is being transmitted to at least six feet in diameter around us. A lot of spiritual systems talk about the astral body or the etheric body. So you can think about it as this energetic body that can be measured that's coming out from the heart that's communicating with what quantum physicists call the field. I don't want to get too complex with that because that's not my purpose today. But I just want you to then think about subtle energies as well, that you have a subtle energy body. You have an energetic body that extends beyond this physical body that is you, that absolutely is you, that is part of you, that is your energy. And if there's one thing, one shift I think that we could make that would make us more powerful and successful and do well as human beings, it would be to become more sensitive, sorry, to become more aware of and more sensitive to this energetic body and the way the energies are operating within our field, within our body and being transmitted and within our energetic field. Most Americans, most people don't even have a clue about that. They don't even know there's a subtle body there or a etheric body there much less how to tap into it or be aware of it or use it as a sensory mechanism. So in other words, just like my physical body can sense things, my etheric body also is receiving information. It's sending information, but it's also receiving information. It's receiving downloads, and then it's bringing it in for me to evaluate. So that's what, we, what some people would call extrasensory perception. But we don't even know that body's there, so we live inside our stories. That's what we do. We're, we're conscious of our stories. 
We're going into a situation. Why is this happening? How is this happening? How can I analytically and logically fix this? How can I think through this? What, you know, we're asking ourselves those kinds of questions and then we're getting stuck in our stories. When it, we become sensitive to subtle energies, uh, if we could shut off that or we could step outside that or we could just let that story play but not pay attention to it. So one of the things I teach people to do with negative self-talk is uh, act like you're in a restaurant and that's a conversation going on at the table next to you. You don't have to engage with it. You don't have to be involved with it, but you can't stop hearing it either. So you don't have to turn it off. Just imagine, you know, it's just different conversations that are going on in the restaurant, <laughs> the restaurant of your mind. Let them be there, but becoming more aware of what's the energy that I'm feeling here. So next time there's an interaction that's negative or positive, instead of why did this happen? What is this person thinking? How is this affecting me? That's all the stuff of stories. Instead of doing that, put those on the tables, restaurant tables around you and feel. Stop thinking so much about things and feel about things. How do I Feel about this, not up here, not in your story. Oh, I feel like, see, when I'm talking about feeling, I'm talking about how do I feel like using real feeling verbiage when you think about it. Well, I feel like they don't like me. I feel like they don't like me. I feel like they mistreated me. I feel like uh, I have no worth here. That's not a feeling. That's not a feeling. Cold is a feeling. Hot is a feeling. Rough is a feeling. Smooth is a feeling. Uh, you get it? And so how do you feel energetically? What's the energy that's coming off that person? What's the energy that's coming off of you? And realize you're, you're internalizing that. You're taking all of that in. And so you have to protect your energy. So you can use breath not only to get into your subconscious and bridge that gateway, but also your breathing is energizing your etheric body with chi or with prana or with spirit or whatever you want to call it. And you can, so you can use your breath to clear a lot of this stuff out or protect yourself. And this is really important for empaths because what happens with empaths is they are more aware of their etheric body. They're more sensitive to these subtle energies. And so they're more aware of what's coming off of other people's etheric bodies. So when they come into contact, whatever that person's putting off, transmitting, they pick up, but then they'll, they'll internalize it. And this is also because of our story. They'll take in that energy. And then instead of realizing that energy has nothing to do with them, nothing whatsoever, they get this feeling and then they try to fit this feeling into the story. Why am I angry? Why am I depressed? Why am I feeling anxious? Oh yeah. I remember why I'm feeling anxious because I don't have any power. <laughs> Oh yeah, I remember why I'm angry because the world is such a terrible place. So you start integrating it into your story and making it about you. Instead, what I'm suggesting is that you do this breathwork practice to realize that you're energizing your etheric body. You become aware of your etheric body and then you start becoming aware of what the energies are that are around you and what you're feeling. And this will cause you to really, 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 really grow in extrasensory perceptions, which has its dangerous or intuitions, which has, which becomes its whole thing. So let me break this down, make this simple. Um, there's all kinds of different breathing techniques out there. Joe Dispenza has a breathing technique, uh, the, where you breathe in and you're pushing your diaphragm in instead of out when you breathe in. 
excuse me. So if you watch baby breathe, their stomach goes up like this. And Joe Dispenza's breathing technique, you're bringing your, your belly button to your spine. And then you're holding, tightening these muscles because you're trying to push energy. It's sort of a form of kundalini breathing where you're trying to push energy up into your pineal gland. And you actually focus on your pineal gland when you're doing that. Wim Hof has a method where you take 30 power breaths. And you do that for 30 times. And then you hold your breath for two minutes. Good luck with that. <laughs> Went off also as you take ice baths and try to get up to 10 minutes a day or whatever. So good luck with that. There's a, uh, there's a form of uh, yogic meditation that does fire breathing, which is just. <laughs> and you do that for however long. Now. Caution, 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 caution. You are messing with uh, autonomic nervous system stuff. I'm not recommending any of these. I don't know you. I don't know your situation. I don't know what kind of traumas you have. Uh, I know that for some people, just slowing their breath down, they have so much trauma in their life that if they just slow their breath down and they keep it there for about five minutes, just steady and slow, they'll begin to panic. And they're panicking because their body is like, well, wait a minute. Everything's a danger out there. Everything's out to get you. The entire world had a meaning and put an invisible kick me sign on your back. And if you slow down, if you get out of this sympathetic nervous response and you slow down, you are going to die. And so they start slowing down and they start to panic. You really, really, really need somebody to that, that knows what they're doing to kind of coach you through this and help you through this. And you might need to get some some real good trauma work done with a really good trauma-informed therapist, stuff like that. So uh, also, if you have high blood pressure, if you have a weak heart, uh, all kinds of different things that could be going on that you might need to check with a doctor or something. But if you're a relatively healthy individual, you have a manageable amount of stress and trauma in your life. And when I say relatively healthy, I mean relatively physically healthy individual. Then you can play with these breathing methods. One of the things you'll notice, though, is that these breathing methods that are out there, and there's tons of them. Uh, like I said, we I think when we did this thing with this yoga teacher, we went through probably a dozen different breathing patterns as part of meditations. So you can, as you play with those, you'll begin to notice your consciousness shifting, your normal state of consciousness shifting. This can be helpful. Now, the other thing that you can do in meditation when you're just focusing on your breath and you're opening up this, uh, this gateway <clears throat> between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind, that's the time to start rewriting your story. And you don't have to do it with a lot of specifics. One of the reasons people get frustrated with the law of attraction is because they're trying to specifically imagine their perfect day or their perfect job or whatever. Like, there's a place for that, but, I, but if you live in an atmosphere of negativity, um, that's going to be really, really difficult. You're really fighting with yourself. The subconscious mind usually responds best to vague suggestions, to vague, open-ended suggestions. So um, you're, you're breathing, you're focusing on your breath, whatever breathing technique you're thinking of.
And then you just, I'm happy. I'm in love with myself. You're just sending those suggestions. I love myself. I have a good life. Good things happen for me. I'm safe. I'm whole. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I'm valuable. See? And so you're just doing that mantra, focusing on your breath. Now, if you want to add something to it, then you can realize that you're breathing in the energy. And the best way to do this is to see it. So for some people, you're breathing in uh, light or love. So let's say a rose-colored light because that relates to love for you. And so you're breathing in this rose-colored light. Then you hold it for a second, and then you set the intention. The energy stays in, but the breath goes out. And then you can just see it building up or you can, you see what I'm saying? So I'm breathing in that rose colored light, which represents love because symbol imagery, that's also the language of the subconscious, but it's also to a large degree, the language of the field and the etheric body too. So hold it. Energy stays in, breath goes out. And then I'm used to just seeing that circulate through my, circulate through my system. Now, the other thing you can do, last suggestion I'll do, and then I'll let you go. But the other thing you can do is is if you feel negative stuff that's going on in your system. Um, so you start living in your body and you feel energy here just stuck. Um, I always feel like I'm nervous. I always feel sick. I always feel like I got punched in the gut or I have this pit in my stomach that just won't go away. So what you can do is focus on that pit, but realize that's energy. That's energy that's stuck in your system. It's not just an emotion or something psychological. It's literally energy stuck in your system. And so I can focus on that feeling of a pit, and I'll put my hands on it, and then I'll breathe into it. And I'll just feel the breath and imagine the breath going right there, and it's really easy to do because your diaphragm, if you breathe from your diaphragm, you just you're you're breathing it in. And then I can force it out and just imagine that I'm pushing that energy out. And, and that's another way you can use breath work to, to push these things and get these energies out of your body. So anyway, um, I'll go back and look at some of the comments here. Hopefully, um, Hopefully this has been helpful. Let's see if I can find them here. Uh, not there. Let me see if I can see some of them on my phone here. <clears throat> Mostly good mornings. Good mornings. Good morning, everybody. Greetings. Uh, Ben, you're funny. Um, yeah, Joy Lynn says, not boring, loving this information, thanks. Marie says, not boring at all. Um, so mostly it looks like just greetings and stuff. Oh, Chad says he's been doing the Winhoff method for three and a half years, and it's been great. That's cool. 
All right. Anyway, I hope this was helpful. If you have questions, you can put them in the comments. Maybe we'll talk some more about this stuff. Covered a lot of different ground with it. Um, but anyway, like I said, I hope it was helpful. Have a great, wonderful day. Thanks for watching if you're watching by replay. And uh, like my buddy Derek Day would say, uh, peace and hair grease. See you later.